Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Uh, it's my honor and privilege to be able to share God's Word this morning. I never take it lightly, and uh, I'm excited to dig into the text this morning. Uh, but before I do that, um, I had a dream last night. I did not plan on sharing the contents of my dream with you tonight, or this morning, but I had a dream last night. I was officiating a wedding. Okay, I've done that a few times. And it occurred to me as I was about to walk down the aisle that I had already preached that exact message to the groom's brother. And so I was like, oh no, the parents are going to know. They're going to be mad. This is not good. And as I'm walking up the aisle, it occurred to me that I didn't know. This is how dreams go, right? It occurred to me that I didn't even know the groom or the bride's name. And so I'm walking to my doom. I'm like, this could not go well. So that was my dream last night. <laughs> Aren't you happy I shared that? No, there's a reason I share that. There it is. Nobody likes the feeling that comes uh, when you think that you're a failure or when you think that something you are about to do or something you have done, you've failed in. Nobody likes that feeling. You know, you can think of maybe when you're in grade school and you're a kid and you think you know the answer, so you shoot your hand right up in the air, the teacher calls on you, and it turns out the whole class now knows you're a dummy and that you don't know the answer. Nobody likes that feeling. Uh, maybe it's when you're in high school and you, you make mention or express interest in a girl you like only to get rejected. No, that never happened to me, everybody. That couldn't have happened. You know, nobody likes feeling like they failed. Maybe it's when uh, you're trying one of those wonderful, super easy DIY Pinterest projects at your house to find out that when you're done, it looks like a three-year-old attempted it, okay? Nobody likes to feel like they failed. Maybe you get an earful from your boss about how you haven't performed well enough, or for maybe some of you, you're just looking back at the last week or the last couple months or the last year or decade and you just look at what you've done and you just feel like an utter failure. Nobody likes that feeling. I've never met someone who enjoys failure. But here's the good news this morning, friends. The good news is the main idea of this sermon, and it's this. Jesus saves failures. Amen? Who in here is a failure? Hands up. Okay, Jesus has come for us. I want you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4, please. We're going to read verses 1 through 11. When you're there, please stand up with me. Matthew chapter 4. Just to remind you of where we were last week, Jesus just identified with all of Israel. He engaged in John's baptism of repentance in the Jordan River, though he was sinless. Okay? He wasn't repenting of his own sin, but he was repenting on behalf of the people of Israel. The Spirit of God, if you remember, then descends down upon him visibly. Everyone there saw it. And then everyone there heard these amazing words declared by the Father. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. What an amazing declaration. And it's at this point that the enemy of God will show up. You ready? Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, 
If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then, verse 5, the devil took him to the holy city, that's Jerusalem, and he set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He, God, will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Verse 8, Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all of these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And then, the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. This is God's word. You can be seated, please. What we're going to do today is this. For this sermon, we're going to work through the passage. I'm going to go temptation by temptation, to show all three of them, explaining their significance. And then at the end of the sermon, I'm going to draw out two applications from each one of the temptations. And it's going to be applications on how we can fight our own sin in Jesus' example. And then lastly, I'm going to conclude with how we can deal with ourselves when we sin. Okay, so that's the plan for this morning, and I need God's help to do it. So please pray with me one more time. Father, uh, we need you. Every hour we need you. I ask that you'd fill me with your spirit, help me to speak only what you have said and may Jesus be glorified among us. We ask this in his name alone. Amen. All right, the first thing we're going to do this morning is define a few of our terms. Okay, there's a few things that we see early on that I want to clarify before we even get started. The first one is this. It's the idea of the wilderness. Okay, Pastor Chris mentioned this a few weeks back. The wilderness is a very significant thing for us to understand. There's a reason why Jesus was led into the wilderness to be tempted and to be tested. It was in the wilderness of Sinai where Israel failed to trust the heart of God. And this was right after they were miraculously delivered in Exodus. Okay, you remember the story? God delivers them and then they are out on the sand and it's only a few days later when these types of rumbling comments start to come. <sighs> what, are we just going to die out here in the, in the wilderness, in the desert? I mean, we had it better back in Egypt. At least we could have died there and had a little comfort, and now we're out. Okay, that's one of them. Another one is, we are so thirsty. What, you just let us out here just to be parched with thirst? They grumbled. The complaining got worse and worse. Finally, they, they are complaining because they don't have food, and God miraculously provides even that. In the midst of all their complaining, God continues to provide for them, and it's in the wilderness after seeing all of God's provision, that Israel still failed. 
God tested them to see if their hearts were loyal to him, and time after time, the answer to that question was a resounding no. It was in the wilderness that they failed to trust the heart of God. Do you think there's any significance on why Jesus is led into the wilderness? He is about to succeed where all Israel had failed. We'll get into that. The second thing I'd like to clarify is this. It's the idea, the theological idea of testing versus tempting, okay? Um, God tests us, but he never tempts us. Does that make sense? God is more than willing to test us, to test our character through trials and difficulties. He brings those our way all the time, right? But God never, ever tempts us to sin. That is not his desire. We see this in the book of James. Um, in James 1.13, he says, Let no one say when he is tempted, Ah, I am being tempted by God. Why? For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Okay, we see it very clearly here. Jesus was led into the wilderness by the Spirit for a test. But who is it that does the tempting? Satan, the devil. Now, many people look at this passage and they like to ask that theological question. Maybe it's on your mind right now. Yeah, okay. So could Jesus have sinned, though? And honestly, that's a great question. And Pastor Trevor told me that that is the topic of his devotional for tomorrow morning. So check those out either on YouTube or on Facebook, and you'll, you'll see those. But that's a great question. But the point is, Jesus didn't fail. Amen? Amen? That's the point. And because he didn't fail, you and I can be saved. And that is significant for us. Now, let's look at the person who does the tempting. This is the devil. No, not the cartoon character with the red spandex, you know, and the pitchfork. No, the devil's real. I think we know that as Christians, but just to remind you of that, he's real, and he's lurking even now as a roaring lion seeking to devour those who are made in the image and likeness of God. He appears on the scene here in Matthew chapter 4, and he's not really a new character, perhaps we should call him an old character, because he was originally a mighty, created, beautiful angel of God, but in his pride, it consumed him, and he sought the glory that belongs to God alone. And so he was cast down to the earth. And now, as we said, he seeks to destroy all of those made in God's image. That's you. That's me. We need to be aware of that. Jesus says about him in John 8, 44, if you're curious of what the character of the devil is like, here it is. Jesus says the devil was a murderer. From the beginning, he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. And so, Jesus says, when he lies, he speaks out of his own character. The NIV says he's speaking his native language, because that's all he knows, lies and deceit. For he is a liar and the father of lies. And guess what, friends? We get to see his lies in full display in the passage today in Matthew 4. So let's take a look at the three temptations and work through them and explain what is going on. The first temptation is this, stones to bread. Now, Jesus had been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. You didn't mishear that. Most people believe that's about as long as you can go before almost guaranteed physical damage, like long-term physical damage, okay? 40 days and 40 nights. 
I get cranky when I miss one meal, okay? And I think you do too. He missed 120 of them, okay? You guys remember the, uh, those old Snickers commercials? You're not you when you're hungry. It's very true. You got Betty White on a, out on a football field. You guys remember that? You're not you when you're hungry. And that's one of the points here. This is the moment, if any, that we would expect Jesus to fail, right? He is fully man, and so we'd expect him to struggle, right? He experiences true, real human desires like hunger, like exhaustion. And so, at precisely this moment, the tempter comes to him in his moment of utter weakness, and he is famished, he's weak, he's exhausted, he's alone. And he says this, well, if you are the Son of God, right, that was just pronounced from the Father, if you are the Son of God, just command these stones right here in front of you. Command them. Command them to become loaves of bread. I see how hungry you are. Wouldn't it be nice just to have a, you know, a nice warm loaf of bread? I know you can do it. You're Jesus. I know it's within your power. Just, just prove it. You're the Son of God. Command it, and your suffering's going to end. It's important that we pay attention to what it is the enemy is saying. I want to ask, what's wrong with his words? We already know he's the liar, he's full of lies, but what's wrong with what he said? Well, for starters, and this is one of the things that's bugged me all week, like sometimes when you're preparing a message, you kind of get angry, and in this situation, I'm like, the devil's a jerk. Like, why is he doing? Of course he is. Listen, the devil who is a created being, less than God, is commanding the eternal son of God to do his bidding. Do you see a problem? Do you see a problem here? Do you see how backwards this is? There's no way in which obeying the devil's voice, even to satisfy a natural human desire, could possibly be honoring to the Lord. Creatures like the devil or like you and I don't have the right to demand anything from God. Now we're, this is amazing, we're invited to make our requests made known to him. That invitation is all throughout the scriptures. But do we have the right to demand from him? That's not our right. Secondly, as I'm thinking about this passage, Jesus, although he was fully God, we never see a single instance in the New Testament where he used his divine abilities merely to serve himself or merely to avoid his own suffering. In fact, this passage has been on my heart a lot lately. Philippians 2 reminds us that Jesus set aside his divine rights. He emptied himself and he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. When he was on the cross, later on, he could easily have sent thousands of angels to come to his rescue. He was jeered by the crowds. Don't you remember? If you are the Son of God, sound familiar? If you are the Son of God, take yourself down from there. You could do it, right? We've seen you do miraculous stuff before. Give it a try. But Jesus did not use his divinity for self-indulgence then, and he doesn't hear in this passage either. So I want to ask, how does Jesus respond in faith, in the face of this temptation? Well, just like you and I would, he quoted Deuteronomy. 
Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 2 and 3, specifically verse 3, Jesus says, uh, no, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You see, it was Jesus' utter delight to follow every single command, every single word of the Father, even if it were found in Deuteronomy. He would not settle for the words of a snake. Jesus' victory here against this temptation can very, very closely, I mean, this could be a whole sermon, but you could compare it very closely to what happens back in the Garden of Eden, can't you? Do you remember Adam in the Garden? What did he have available to him to eat? Everything except one tree. That's the one God said don't eat from. And so listen what the commentator um, Richard Glover says about this. He says, back in the garden, with every tree of the garden for food, Adam fell. Contrast that with Jesus. Now with desert stones mocking his hunger, the second Adam conquered. This is our Savior. He conquered where Adam failed, he conquered where Israel failed, and he conquers where we failed because he has come to save sinners. Love, this takes us to temptation number two. I'm calling this one a leap of faith. Verses five and six, let's read them once more. It says, Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, Psalm 91, he's quoting scripture. He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. It's as if the enemy is saying to him, so, okay, you believe that God provides for your every need, right? You don't live by bread alone, you live by all of his words. Well, guess what? How about some Psalm 91? What do, you, uh, what do you think? You live by his word, so live by this. The pinnacle of the temple is estimated that it's about 300 feet. That's a football field. 300 feet above the bottom of the Kidron Valley. So you have Jerusalem, which is the city of, on a hill, and on top of the city you have the temple. And the pinnacle of the temple, the high point, or the wing of the temple, estimated from there jumping down to the bottom of the Kidron Valley would be about a football field. That's how long of a jump this would be. So, you trust God's word, do you? You trust him to protect you? Just take a leap of faith. Just jump. God will protect you, right? Now, here's another huge uh, reality that I need to point out. And I think you probably already know it. Did you know that the devil can use scripture too? Did you know that he knows the Bible? He's described, in fact, as appearing as an angel of light, though there is no light in him whatsoever. That's 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. In fact, he knows more scripture than you or I ever will. But there's a difference. He might know the scriptures, but he does not love and submit to them. Because he can't. So though he knows more of the Bible than we do, though he's quoting Psalm 91, it's not as if he actually believes Psalm 91 or loves the realities in Psalm 91 or trusts the God of Psalm 91. And so he's using the scriptures 
twisting them and trying to use what God has said to tempt the God who said it. Do you see how backwards that is? He did this in Matthew 4, and he does this to us, too. Psalm 91, I want to encourage you, put a bookmark there even right now, come back to it later this afternoon and read it through. It is a beautiful and comforting psalm which reminds us how God protects all those who have put their trust solely in him. Nowhere in Psalm 91 does it say anything like this. Uh, be reckless. Put yourself in risky, foolish, or dangerous situations contrary to God's word, and then expect God to bail you out. Right? He's good, so he'll do it, right? That's not what Psalm 91 says. That's like me going out to M37 right now, deciding to lay down and take a nap and just say, God, you're good. I know you got me. That's, that's not called faith. That's called stupidity, <laughs> okay? <laughs> Should Jesus jump off the pinnacle of the temple just to prove who he is or to prove God's faithfulness to him? Absolutely not. The commentator Leon Morris writes this. He says, what Satan is suggesting here is that Jesus should needlessly thrust himself into danger. He would be creating a hazard where none previously existed. And for what? To compel God to save him miraculously. It is a temptation to manipulate God to create a situation not of God's own choosing. So how does Jesus respond in the face of this temptation? Well, it's simple. Uh, he quotes the book of Deuteronomy. Chapter 6, verse 16. He said, uh, no, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. The perfect Son of God refuses here to put his heavenly Father, whom he loves, to the test. That's not faith. Faith is trusting in the revealed character and promises of God, not testing God to see if those things will come true. Lastly, we come to the final temptation. Look, at, look with me at verse 8, calling this a shortcut to glory. Verse 8 says the following. Again, the third temptation. The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. This is likely a vision of some sort, because there's, you guys probably know this, because the earth is round and all. There's no singular mountain in which you can see all the kingdoms of the world. So this is very likely some type of vision that's happening here. But either way, the enemy of God is showing Jesus what could be his. But as you know, every temptation comes with a cost, doesn't it? Every single one. He is offered right now all the kingdoms of the entire world and their glory. You want rule? You want power? You want authority? You want power that the world craves? Take it. It's right here. A lot of people think that maybe the enemy didn't have the right to offer this, but the New Testament does tell us that he is the kingdom, the prince of the power of the air. He does have a level of authority here in the world. It doesn't take us many more than, I don't know, five seconds in this world to realize that he's running it in many respects. You know, I think it's, a, I think it's Martin Luther, I don't remember, but he said, like, Satan has this, but just remember, like, even Satan is the Lord Satan. The idea is God's got him on a leash. He can only do so much. <laughs> okay, so that's the idea here. 
But it's at this point that Satan drops the disguise. You can have all of this, but this is what it'll cost you. I want your worship. The devil wants to be worshipped. He wants glory. That's what he's always been after. And if we pay attention here, we realize that Satan will offer whatever it takes to us to obtain this glory, this worship. Here in this passage, Satan is offering Jesus a shortcut to the glory that the Father has decreed to give him. If you've ever read Psalm 2, it says that one day the Father will give all of the nations of the world as an inheritance to this son, this king. That's speaking of Jesus. So this was something God already promised. So why is he offering this? Well, the way to obtain this promise was through suffering and the cross. And here Satan says, no, no, no. Get the prize without the suffering. What if Jesus would have obeyed that? You and I would still be lost and dead in our sins. The devil will give him that now. Jesus needs to merely sidestep the cross to go around the suffering. And so how does Jesus respond? Well, he says, be gone, Satan. Earlier in this passage, you, reveal, you see the devil, and, and the word for that is the devil, not Satan. The devil means the tempter, the accuser, the slanderer. Here, the word Satan specifically means the adversary or the enemy of God. It's as if Jesus says, no, 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 I know exactly who you are, and everything you say is in direct opposition to the Lord. He says, be gone, Satan. Now, quizzing your Bible knowledge here, where else does Jesus say something incredibly similar? Peter, do you remember in Matthew 16 when Jesus is telling his followers that he is about to be led to the path of suffering and the cross? And well-meaning Peter, who I, I feel so much in common with Peter, you guys have no idea. <laughs> well-meaning Peter takes Jesus and he pulls him aside and like, ah, okay, that was over the line. And he rebukes Jesus for saying this. And what does Jesus say to Peter, his friend? Get behind me, Satan. Do you see the similarities here? Peter was trying to tempt Jesus to avoid what he came to do, to become an atoning sacrifice for sinners. What is Satan tempting Jesus to do right here in Matthew chapter 4? Get all the glory, just don't go through the cross. Do you see how deceptive and sneaky his lies are? Jesus continues and he says, You, for it is written, Deuteronomy, yes, Deuteronomy, once again, we'll come back to that. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Lastly, in verse 11, to finish the story, we see that the devil, who is a fallen angel, leaves Jesus, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. It's important to note that that's what Satan was actually created to do, was to serve the Lord, not to tempt him to sin. So now that we've looked at the passage, friends, I want to draw out some specific applications from this passage on how we can fight our own sin in Jesus' example, okay? And I'm calling this the resistance clinic, okay? Jesus is about to put on a clinic for us on how to resist the enemy. And honestly, the New Testament 
the, the, all the whole Bible is so filled with things that this could be hours and hours long. And many of you who know me are wondering if it's going to be. No, it's not going to be hours long. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to glean two short applications from all three of the temptations. So there's going to be six in total. So if you're taking notes, one to six. Okay? Jesus shows us here how to defeat sin and temptation right here in Matthew 4. The first one is this. Realize in our fight against sin that temptation often comes when we are weak. Think about it in your own life, okay? John Piper said this earlier in the week. He posted this on Twitter. And he said, remember, Esau sold his inheritance for a bowl of soup. Bodily impulses make people crazy. Okay, and that's the point. The physical desires are really, really strong. And when we come to a place when we are weak and we are weary, when we're tired, when we're stressed out, when we're faced with our own failures and our own inadequacies, what in that moment do we run to? I want you to think for just a moment. Don't say this out loud because it would be super awkward. But where specifically are you tempted? What's the thing that it's around every single corner in your life? Is it possible that there's a correlation with that sin and you being tired or stressed or bored or lonely or afraid or feeling like a failure? The enemy of God seeks to exploit our weaknesses and tempt us to sin. And the reason why he does it that way is because it often so we need to be a people who are on guard because temptation comes when we're weak. Number two, this is also from the first temptation. Uh, physical desires are real, but they don't rule us. Jesus was actually hungry. Okay, This is not one of those things that's made to look a certain way for us because we're human. No, he was actually hungry. He was actually exhausted. But Jesus, we see here, did not give in to sin simply to satisfy his physical appetites. In fact, he denied his physical appetites at times. I mean, he was just fasting from food for 40 days and 40 nights. And he did this, fasting is often associated with prayer throughout the Bible. He did this to pursue a deeper intimacy with God. Perhaps a simple implication for you and I is that we should consider a fast in our life. That's one of those neglected spiritual disciplines. Most people don't do it anymore, myself included. But what if we actually fasted for a while to see what sins rear their ugly head, where God will actually let us see what our idols are so that they can be crucified by the Spirit? That would be a good idea. Number three, this comes from the second temptation. We said it earlier, but it needs reinforcing. The devil knows Scripture. We, as the people of God, need to learn how to discern truth. We need to learn how to discern it. The enemy is an expert at twisting it and making something that's not true seem like it's plausible. He is a liar. You and I must discern, discern we must learn to discern what is true from what is counterfeit. The problem, and I think we've all been there, so this is my hand up in the air as much as everybody else's, the problem is, is many of us tend to treat our favorite news outlets or social media feeds like it is true. 
Like, it is the standard of truth. Many of us think everything that's said on Fox News or CNN or you name it or everything I see on Facebook must be true. Not even close, <laughs> right? We so often act like that is the standard of truth, but it is the word of God and that alone that is the standard for all things we should say, do, and believe. It is the standard of truth. Perhaps all the lies that we've seen this last year from the left or from the right have come, and maybe they've finally shown us that we need to saturate our minds in this truth and take our minds out of so many of the lies that are around us. Number four is this. We are to fight sin by knowing and delighting in God's word. Knowing and delighting. In each one of Jesus' responses, he quotes from the scriptures, which he loves. They're his delight. Uh, I think it's John 4, after talking with the woman on the well, Jesus says, no, my food is to do the will of the Father who sent me. I have food you don't know about. The disciples are scratching their head. They're like, did you bring him something? Like, they, they, they completely miss out on this reality. He has, his food is the scriptures. Now, if our ability to fight sin was dependent on how much of Deuteronomy we have memorized, I think we'd all be likely up a creek. Amen? Amen. Amen. But Jesus defeated the devil with Deuteronomy. That was almost my sermon title, by the way. It had such good alliteration. Defeating the devil with Deuteronomy that I thought about it, like this close. I decided something a little classier, you know. If you want to resist sin in the face of temptation, you must know and delight and cherish God's word above all. And that's going to take some discipline. That's going to take some retraining of our appetites. Number five, we learned this from the third temptation. Satan is seeking your worship. He wants your heart. That's what he's after. You know, there's a battle for worship going on. It's even when we come here on Sunday mornings when you feel that weird tiredness or you're just like, I'm just really not into this right now. We believe Christ is everything, but we're just like, uh, kind of going through the motions. There's always a battle going on, a spiritual battle for our worship. If Jesus was offered all the kingdoms of the world, again, what do you think you will be offered? The very simple test to discern uh, what might be offered to you or what your idols might be is just a four-word sentence, and it says this. What do you want? Like, really, thinking about honestly, what do you want? If you're honest about what your heart truly desires between you and the Lord, that's very likely where you're going to be tempted. We can tell often by what grabs our attention, what we obsess about, what consumes our idle thoughts, our time, our money, our affections, our loves. What do you want? Satan will give anything to you for your soul, for your worship. Jesus says in Mark 8, 36, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world if he loses his soul? Final one, number six. Resist the devil and he will flee. See that very directly with what Jesus did here. This comes from James 4, 7. This is exactly what Jesus did. Resist, resist, resist. Though temptation continues to abound, though it persists, resist in the strength that Christ gives. And by that, friends, I don't mean just try harder. That's a losing battle. That's like going up against a tank and trying to shoot it with a BB gun. Okay? That will not work. If you just try harder to fight your sin, you're going to lose. 
So what do I mean by fighting in Christ's strength? Well, we need to look to Jesus who defeated sin perfectly. Just remember, friends, if you are in Christ, you are in him, and he is in you. And when he ascended back to the Father after his death and resurrection, he said, I'm going to send you my spirit. His spirit now, the very spirit that empowered Jesus in the wilderness, fills our hearts to resist the temptations of the enemy. He has given us his spirit, and that is the real weapon against sin. I want to invite now the worship team to come back forward. They're going to lead us in a closing song. Israel failed time and time again in the wilderness. But it's not just Israel, right? Adam failed in the garden. Israel failed. And we fail too. But the question I want to ask is, what do we do when we fail? Do we give up? Do we give in and just say, oh, this is a losing battle. I'm always going to struggle with this. Are we disqualified? Does God no longer love us or call us to himself because of our sin? No. I said it earlier, friends. The good news is that Jesus saves failures. That's every one of us in this room. Jesus is the perfect son of God. He triumphed in the wilderness when Israel failed. And in every single area in which you and I fail, Jesus has succeeded. And so today, friends, if you believe in his name, he has given you this perfection. We don't stand on our own merit before God. We stand solely on the work of Jesus. So don't believe for one second that Jesus doesn't welcome you back in the midst of your own failures. Run to him, take all of your sin, all of your failure, place it before his feet, and trust again the mercy of Christ. It's as if Jesus says to all of us when we come into a church building, welcome, failures, sinners, ruiners of their life. Take heart, because I've succeeded where you